Welcome to Mission 150, a podcast dedicated to celebrating 150 years of Adventist mission. I'm here with two of the most influential, one of the two of the best historians in this this church has ever had. Uh, David Trim, Bill Knott, thank you for being here and talking about Adventist history, especially in regards to mission. What are we talking about today? Thanks, Sam. Today we're talking about Hannah Moore, who is one of the most significant figures that Adventists will never have heard of, one of the most significant figures in their own history. What she stands for, because as we'll discover in both this episode and the next episode, she doesn't spend that many years as an Adventist before she dies, but what she stands for is really important, I think. And we're glad to have with us Bill Knott. Bill Knott has a PhD in American religious history, and he wrote his doctoral dissertation on Hannah Moore. So we're in very good hands. Bill was, of course, for many years the editor of the Adventist Review, and now is an associate director of the General Conference Religious Liberty, Public Affairs and Religious Liberty Department. So Bill, thank you very much for being with us. Uh, I'll go anywhere, anytime to talk about uh, a woman whose life story and her commitment to mission has really significantly influenced my thinking about what Adventist mission was, what it is, and yes, what it should be. Mm. So, Bill, we're talking about an important but not well-known figure, not just, as I suggested, a a symbol for Adventists, but also somebody who was important in mid-19th century evangelical American Protestantism. Bill, explain for us first, though, which Hannah Moore you're talking about, because there are two, aren't there? The more well-known and celebrated is Hannah Moore, a British evangelical born in the 1770s who's a contemporary of John Newton, William Wilberforce, and the anti-slavery movement going on in Britain that ultimately successfully uh, persuaded Parliament to pass legislation banning human slavery in the British Empire. Uh, Hannah Moore is part of that cohort of persons known as the Blue Stocking Group who actually influenced legislation in light of human need and and the the tradition of slavery that had previously been in the British Empire. So that Hannah Moore, much better known, much more referred to, if you do searches on Google, 90% of them are going to be of the British Hannah Moore. The Hannah Moore I refer to is born in 1808 on a small farm in Northern Connecticut. Mm. She grows up at a time when the school curriculum for young women with promise in terms of education was filled with the writings of the other Hannah Moore, the British wit and playwright and uh, essayist. And so the Hannah Moore in Northern Connecticut, not from an otherwise obscure family in a tiny little farm in a rocky community, grows up with her world being shaped by this sort of namesake figure she Mm. identifies with, and frankly, whose life story inspires her to do something more than be a farmer's wife on a small farm in Connecticut. She was very well known by the reformers. Why? Her own life coincides with most of the major movements of the Protestant reform era that begins in the 1820s and really concludes with the outbreak of the Civil War. 
Uh, in fact, the reason I chose to focus on her story in my doctoral dissertation is that in a singular way, you can track the entire story of the reform movements by telling her story. Mm. Her, her story, her biography, is a way into looking at the many, many causes to which Protestant evangelicals committed themselves in that era between approximately 1820 and 1860. Coincidentally, you might say, Hannah personally travels through most of those reform organizations supporting most of those causes. And that gave me a thesis to say we can tell the story of the reform era, not just by siloing certain causes, but showing how people actually made right. commitments to them. Right. What motivated Hannah to all this extraordinary journey through mid-19th century American reform? What was her motivation? from the letters I've recovered of hers, now almost 100, she details on several occasions her deep sense of having been identified by God in the womb for some special calling. Wow. This is unusual for a woman born to a farm family in Northern Connecticut. This deep sense since she was a child that God had his hand on her life. She responds, like many children do, to the revival movements that mm -hmm. go through the era. But by the time she is a late teenager, she is already thinking about mission. She's petitioning the mission boards in Boston, where most of the mission organizations were headquartered. I want to go and serve as a missionary. Her first goal had always been Africa, but she was getting no responses at all. So she decided to focus on being a missionary to Native Americans. And just to clarify, Bill, that at, at this period, it's still very early in the history of American foreign missions. Oh, the American, very early. The American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions is only founded, I think, in 1812 or around that time. Right. And one of the things, they, they send missionaries to Burma and China, but they do send missionaries to Native Americans as well. So this is part of the this is part of the era that you would go as a missionary. If you can't go as a missionary to Africa, or not for a while, yes. <laughs> then you can go and serve as a missionary within North America. And she eventually, I would say, wore them down with her petitions. There's almost nine years of correspondence where she writes to the mission board. She's a school teacher teaching at a variety of small, we would call them public schools in Northern Connecticut near her home. But she doesn't want to do that with her life. She wants to do something that feels congruent with what God has called her to do. Right. To her, that was Africa originally, but it, that wasn't going to happen. So she starts focusing on, send me to what is present-day Oklahoma, to where the Native Americans who had been forcibly removed from the southeastern United States had ended at the end of the Trail of Tears. She wants to go, as she says, to atone for the sins of her nation in forcing the Native peoples from their homelands to the bleaknesses of the prairie of eastern Oklahoma, where many died. And what's the mission board that she's writing to? American Board of Commissioners of it's, Foreign it's, Missions. It's the American ABC board. ABC FM right, in right. Boston, which was the one sending four missionaries to Burma and to China and to with the Native Americans. There is a political issue that underlines all of this. New England was solidly Whig, anti-democratic, anti-Andrew Jackson. When we say anti-democratic, we don't mean opposed to democracy. We mean to the, the Democratic, Democratic Party, Party. <laughs> which had just really formed in the broadest sense under the leadership of Andrew Jackson and others of the kind. And their political resistance to his removal plan for Native Americans was also fueled by a belief in justice in their society. And they couldn't tolerate the notion that the federal government 
was ignoring Supreme Court rulings and forcibly removing tens of thousands of Native Americans from their ancestral homelands. So the politics and the ministry of the era fused in a cultural uh, situation in New England where Hannah and most of her contemporaries were angry at their government for a decision they thought was terrible and were determined to do something about it. Most of them invested their efforts in mission, rather than not in mission, as Hannah did. They, most of them went the political route. Uh -huh. Hannah decides, I'm going to give my life. And she uses that term. And it makes it clear that she doesn't think she'll probably come back. She sees this as a one-way trip. So when does she go to Oklahoma and how old is she? She is, when she goes to Oklahoma, about 31 in 1840. Um, and this is a, an era when, again, only married couples were sent as missionaries. Hmm. But having endured nine years of her petitions, <laughs> they eventually say, okay, go to Oklahoma. And she's not married at this time? She's not married, never marries in, in the course of her life. And they say to her, how would you like to travel? And they said, would you prefer to go by water? And she said, I don't know. I've never crossed a body of water bigger than the Connecticut River. <laughs> so they end up getting her to Pittsburgh where she gets on the Ohio River down to the Mississippi, floats down the Mississippi, is taken up the Red River into present day Arkansas and Oklahoma and dropped off at a pier in the middle of nowhere where there's one cabin. Wow. So we have a young woman who like most late teens goes through this profound sense of injustice yes. that is doing that is happening to somebody mm. yes. but there is no twitter or facebook <laughs> or instagram to go and complain about right. everyone else so she decides i am going to do something about this yeah. rides for nine years to this yeah. board she's not an adventist at this point no. right so she there, are no ad there is no adventist at there this is no point. Adventist. so she's riding and she's trying and and she is she is petitioning to go uh but she's constantly being denied right her life, however, does not lose the focus of her calling. Oh. And this is remarkable because by the time you have those that sense of injustice, by the time you're 20-something, it's yeah. like, yeah, get, get a life, mate. You know, <laughs> do, do something about that. But she doesn't give up. At 31, she actually goes. And how long does she stay working with? She spends the next seven years working with the Cherokee and Choctaw in the ABCFM missions in eastern Oklahoma. She's working with some of the most significant Native American leaders in the country. Mm. Chief John Ross, head of the Cherokee Nation, represents the, the nation to the U.S. Congress. Samuel Worcester, the well-known evangelical clergyman who was named in the Supreme Court case, trying to help them be able to stay in their ancestral lands. These are all her contemporaries. The Cherokee Sequoia, who first puts the alphabet down, lives 15 miles from her mission and is frequently engaged with her. Right. So she's in a world of significant people that we remember, but her own story has sort of drifted out of view. My wife loves to joke that Hannah Moore is the Forrest Gump of the 19th century, <laughs> the unknown individual who wanders through the lives of very well-known people, but somehow connects them in an unusual thread. Where did she go after Oklahoma? After her years in Oklahoma, her chief contention, and she was never what you would call a serene soul. She's an activist in her soul. She wants change. She is furious with the ABCFM when she discovers in arriving in Oklahoma that the Native Americans who she has gone to help and to save are holding black slaves. 
as mm. they had done in the Southeast. She's horrified. The group she has gone to help with their injustices are perpetuating injustice toward yet another group. Right. Her own abolitionist sentiments are violated. She's constantly writing to the board in Boston. You must take a stance on slavery. And they say, lady, we did you a favor. We sent you to Oklahoma. Just be quiet now. In the process, in her years there, she discovers Millerism. She, a Millerite convert, had gone to meetings in Boston, comes to teach with her out in there. Oklahoma, in Oklahoma. Because Oklahoma. That's quite unusual because there's not many Millerites that far west. Exactly. In fact, it's the furthest west I've been able to track mm. anyone in the Millerite experience. We even know his name, Cable Koval. And he has heard Miller preach in Boston. He comes in 1843 to her mission station in eastern Oklahoma. And a revival breaks out because of his reteaching what he's learned from Miller. It becomes such a point of problem that the board in Boston and the local pastor start communicating, how do we shut down this Millerite thing? Hmm. And the pastor preaches sermons against Millerism. And Hannah, however, we don't know exactly if she was expecting with other Adventists the return of Jesus on October 22. Very likely was, but there is a silent period in her course. And there are there. some Adventists who believe Christ is coming soon, but don't actually go down, don't believe October 22, 1844. She was in so. the broadest sense in her mind, a Millerite had become an Adventist, but had not yet connected with other groups of Adventists. There weren't any in her time. Ultimately, her experiences are she can't get the board to change their mind about slavery. And so she says, I'm done. And in 1847, she quits the mission service and goes back to school teaching in upstate New York. But she can't live with the, sen with the sense that God still wants her in mission and wants her ultimately to go to Africa. And so how is it that she does in the end go to Africa? Fascinatingly, this, a group of persons who had gathered around the Amistad survivors. These are the group of black slaves on a slave ship who mutinied in 1838 off the coast of Cuba and thought, having taken control of the ship, they would sail to a free state. They sail into a New Haven Harbor and are put in prison because they are someone else's property, according to the law. Mm. Famous court case, ultimately decided by the U.S. Supreme Court, frees them. and. That the group of evangelicals that had clustered around the Amistad survivors helps them be repatriated to Africa and becomes their support group. This is what ha this is the story after the famous movie of about twenty years Correct. ago, which stops with the Supreme Court case. So this is where the story continues. And frankly, Hannah's story, as she supplies it, is the only known after history of the Amistad oh. survivors to date. In fact, a, a prominent historian of that era of West Africa laments, and I read her work, that we know nothing about the Amistad survivors after they return to Africa. It's actually not true. She didn't happen to know that there is there are many letters from Hannah about her experiences with them. Fascinatingly, as she lives with them and hears their story, she retells the Amistad mutiny story as they told it in Africa. Interesting. And it's significantly different in its details and in its point than the versions that had come out in the US press, which were mostly negative to this whole mutinous group of slaves. She tells the story as they tell it. She learns their language. She's at a wedding feast. One of them stands up and tells the story. She mm. records the whole thing in a very long letter which is fascinating in what it provides. She begins to do something that every person in mission ultimately has to wrestle with, to identify with 
the people she's gone to serve. She begins to hear their real stories, hear them as human beings, not as objects to be saved, go to their weddings. She was the best known cook in the region. So they every celebration, <laughs> they brought Hannah to cook. Wow. She is a person who masters languages easily and picks up dialects. And she writes their stories down in her correspondence. It is the only known record we have of that group after they returned to Africa. At what point did you know you wanted to, to, to dive deeper into this story, Bill? In part, I would say because I was always a bit interested, even as a young pastor, in the, the outlines of this woman who ultimately had a, such an unfortunate ending to her story. But when I began to understand in my, my doctoral work that her story explains many things that historians haven't even attempted to explain about the era. Mm. How, if you were committed to abolition, were you also committed to temperance right. and women's higher education and support for Native Americans? No one has actually studied the interconnectedness between these right. movements. These subjects are often treated in, in isolation from each other. There's a history of anti-slavery, obviously there's histories of temperance, there's history of women's, the women's uh, emancipation right. and education movement, but the stories aren't necessarily brought together. And yet very often, both in Britain and America, it's the same people who are involved in all of them. They're all involved in and, reform. And, and we, we know many of the leader names and we know that they were often on each other's boards and all the reform organizations. But here's a person not well known who moves through all of these commitments, intense, socially engaged commitments. She wants to change her society and her world. And that leads her into mission. It but also it, helped. But it also is, is what attracts you to follow up on Sam's question, it's, it's what makes you think, here's a, here's a good subject for a doctoral dissertation. Well, and, and on a personal level, Sam, it's seeing the roots of Adventism, the people who were drawn to Adventism. What were their social commitments? What justice issues moved and burned in them? What causes did they own? And the longer I looked at her life and studied the lives of other people who were just then becoming Adventist and ultimately Seventh-day Adventist, you find the same kinds of commitments. Abolitionism, support for women's education, support for Native Americans, deep intense commitments to temperance. The Adventists were being funneled, one might say, through a series of life commitments mm. to a movement that ultimately expressed all of those things in one place, namely the Seventh-day Adventist Church. What I see as a theme here is, is I'm, I'm counteracting the perhaps the French secularism of a previous century, yeah. which now, you know, has our secularism today probably has its roots there somewhere where the, f the freedom that people can experience is the lack of religion. Yes. Okay. Especially Christianity because mm. the French revolution wanted, <laughs> yep. uh, what is it that they said? Um, the last Pope strangled on the guts, guts of the last King. Mm. Yes. They wanted to yes. destroy religion entirely. Mm. And today you have a lot of young people that have the same yearnings uh, for those that have been marginalized, where precisely God's will for the world has not been followed through and people suffered. You have that sense of injustice that you want to do something about. And yet for Hannah and for many others, the gospel is the solution. It is not the lack of Christianity. It's precisely the true Christian values that will bring that freedom in, in the Native Americans, in Africans, and others. 
Do you see that those and, things? And these are the things she's committed her life to, these causes. And for her, her commitment to the gospel is entirely congruent with her commitment to these other, we would call mm -hmm. social causes, or some would even call them political causes. These were all integrated in her mind. She saw the justice issues in her time. She's living in a period in Africa during her seven years in first time in Africa. She's living at an intense time of tribal warfare. It's a region of Africa that to this day is a competing area yeah. for animism, Islam, Christianity. All of those forces were happening in the 1850s on the continent as well. So she, massacres are happening as one group attacks the other just outside the mission station. She writes of children rushing to her and holding onto her skirts while terrible things are happening outside the mission station. She's living in, the, in this context where the gospel is the one thing that she sees as answering all of the social chaos she's experiencing from competing forces. For a number of years, she is the only adult and certainly the only Caucasian within hundreds of miles. Wow. She is teacher, she is cook, and she preaches every Sunday because there's no one else to preach. Mm. She begins to feel God working in her and the fulfillment of that sense of childhood calling that you are going to mission and you are going right. to Africa. Ultimately, when after she is joined by others, her health begins to be a challenge and she returns to the United States. So just give us the date. When did she go and when did she, she come back? She goes in 1850, sponsored by an abolitionist missionary organization, the American Missionary Association, led by folks from Oberlin, Charles Finney's influence. She goes as their sponsory to Africa, but doesn't expect to return. But she does. She does. Seven years later in 1857, her sense of personal commitment is so deep that when she leaves, I've checked the manifest of the ship out of which she sailed from New York Harbor. It inventories what she took with her, including this odd entry, GC and coffin, grave clothes and coffin. She preloaded her coffin so that she wouldn't be an expense to the folks in Africa. She expected to die there and with good reason. So many of the people who yes. went in those first waves of mission died of malaria. Or and, other, and black water fever and dysentery and other diseases Amazingly, as well. Amazingly, she yes. survived. And after seven years, though, she's experiencing quite a number of effects of various tropical illnesses, returns to the States in 1857, this time looking for a job anywhere as a teacher. Can't find one, ultimately goes to Kentucky and is deeply upset that she's teaching in a slaveholding state. <sighs> but ultimately returns to New England to teach. And there she encounters what I have called the sum of all reforms, the Adventism that brought together all of her life commitments to the gospel, to free will, to revival, to temperance, to women's higher education, to, to rights for Native Americans, abolitionism. Adventism sounded to her like the composite of everything her life had been leading her toward. So, hmm. but she goes back to Africa. Ultimately, yes. But, but first she encounters, so she encounters Seventh-day Adventism before she goes back to Africa? She, in 1861, she's doing itinerant teaching in schools in Northern Connecticut. And there is a, a huge funeral that takes place in her hometown. The funeral is for the first Union general who dies in the Civil War. 
thousands of people come to town, marching bands, all kinds of things to celebrate this hero, this general who's died in conflict. A young Adventist pastor, Stephen Haskell, hmm. then in his early 20s, says, lots of people, opportunity. <laughs> he stayed as an evangelistic meeting in a schoolhouse, very likely one in which Hannah had taught, we now know. And Hannah happens to walk into the evangelistic meetings and hears this understanding of Adventism that brings together all these threads because of the emphasis on end time, prophetic understanding, and the significance of a deeply biblical faith. She's a woman who has literally memorized the entire New Testament and major portions of the Old. That's documented by her peers. Wow. She's a prodigious mind and a prodigious biblical insight. Her letters are full of quotations that she has in, from memory. So when she hears Haskell, things click with her understanding of all these issues she's been wrestling with. Another one of those amazing God moments, she discovers that she is staying at the same boarding house as Haskell and his wife. <laughs> he records that he, Haskell, and Hannah stayed up well past midnight studying what he had presented in the schoolhouse, going over it. And he says when he came down to breakfast, she was still sitting there going over all of this. This is her first contact with Adventism, but it answers so many things. Or rather, it's her first contact with Seventh-day Sabbath-keeping Adventism. Seventh-day Sabbath-keeping, correct. Yeah. She's familiar with Millerism in the broadest sense at yeah. that point. But now it all begins to come together. But she doesn't convert to Seventh-day Adventism before she goes back to Africa, right? No, you, you would take a while to convert Hannah to anything. She's kind of made like the soil of her home region. It's rocky, flinty, <laughs> difficult to change. She begins, however, to be interested and is caught. And Haskell does what any good Adventist should do. He sends copies of a little magazine called The Review and Herald on packet boats to the mission station she's returned to in West Africa. Which is when? When does she go back to Africa? 1861, she goes back to Africa. So she's in Africa for seven years, then back in America for four years, and then goes back, then to, back Africa. to Africa. As now as an independent, not sponsored by a mission organization, she goes to a mission station she negotiates with, not of any Adventist faith. She goes to a Methodist one, an Episcopalian one. Haskell figures out where she is and starts sending copies of the Review and Herald on a packet right. boats, and she reads herself into a full embrace of Adventism by October of 1863. October 63, so a couple of years after she's, a couple of years after she's heard Haskell preach, right. and not much short of that since she's gone back to Africa. Correct. She's now funding herself, no one's sponsoring her. She is working at an Episcopal mission station in 1863 on the west coast of Africa. Isn't that the same year that we organized ourselves? And this is literally with a name five left? months after the church organizes. Hannah writes a letter in October of 1863 to Battle Creek. She's been getting the magazine and says, you may now consider that you have fully uh, full fledged Seventh Day Adventists on the coast of Africa. Mm. Plural. Plural. That's the, the significant element in the quote. It, and she writes, she begins writing letters every few months to the Review and Herald. Fully fledged Seventh-day Adventists. Let, let me 
see if I understood this correctly. You have a woman who clearly has a high IQ. I'm yes. trying to get to the bottom of who she is, yeah. right? Because this is the first time I'm hearing about her in any depth. She is disagreeable from a personality perspective. Which Challenging means, is the, uh, the <laughs> nice word. You know, because you've got one of the, I'm, I'm using the big five model of personality. Yes, so right. one of those elements is agreeableness. Yeah. And you can be more agreeable, which means you're more compassionate, or you can be more disagreeable, which means, it doesn't mean the, you know, the official word in English, which is someone who is terribly annoying, but it does mean that you, you have, it's easier for you to disagree with decisions. A and, contentious and so mindset. Yeah, would be it's an like a way to describe her, and and that's her because she's in, she insists she has her own mind. She does not easily agree with other people. That that's her high conscientious as well. Yes, right. Yes. Somewhat open to new experiences, and so she's a formidable character. Who oh, I, my wife used to hear me laughing as I transcribed her letters in my <laughs> upstairs office. She'd say, "What are you laughing about?" I say. This reminds me of one of my New England aunts, the same kind of personality that the strong woman school teacher, uh, the individual who is not going to hear no kindly in any environment. And <laughs> right. as a consequence, her letters are often unintentionally funny as she takes off at the knees significant leaders in the mission movement who are doing making wrong decisions in her viewpoint. She is a figure that formidable fits too. She, huh. she is that kind of personality. So she is now in Africa and oh, okay, so let me carry on. So you've got this 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 person who God calls, because yeah. clearly God called her. Yeah, she is and she is sure. living out her calling more committed to God than anyone else and she finds in Adventism this bringing together of mm. philosophical and theological Elements. So the, probably the great controversy has a, a profound effect in bringing all of this together. Okay, this means that Adventists were talking about things that in a very polarized society that she was living in, yes. it's polarized in America. Yes. It's extremely polarized in Africa as yes. tribes are killing yeah. other tribes. And, yeah. you know, the worst form of polarization is when one group of people try to kill the other group of people directly. I mean, it doesn't, <laughs> yeah, yeah. doesn't get worse than this. And she's experienced this. Now, in the middle of all of this, she finds Adventism makes sense, which means that those conversations were not uh, secondary. No. Mission was was having those conversations. And not just mission, but reform, because she's interested, because this is what her life has been, is, is been committed to a series of reforms, and she doesn't find that Adventism antithetical to that, just the opposite. In fact, Adventism is a reformist movement as she envisions it and as it actually was. If you study the era, yes. it has intensely aligned itself with certain reform commitments in the culture and shared a lot of, uh, of, of people who moved through those other movements and found their way into Adventism. Think and not just, not just abolitionism, because many Adventists, not all Adventists will know that early Adventists were very, very passionately, strongly abolitionist and anti-slavery, but not everyone realizes that we were also involved in other reform movements. And, and in fact, if you track the history back of those that first generation of Adventist leaders, you will find, like her story, a similar set of commitments to causes in their culture. They brought that with them because Adventism was reformist. Adventism saw itself as a change agent mm. in both church society and in secular society. And as a consequence, there's an activism in that first generation and in, into the second generation of Adventists that Hannah thoroughly exemplifies. And it shows itself, you go 
and persuade people. That's what mission is. It's the process of going and persuading that y there's a value God has brought to you that will make their lives better. To a vast degree, all of that is localized, however. Because I'm trying to apply it here, yeah. uh, Bill and, and David, and, and it's very difficult because now everything is globalized. Mm. Yeah. Whatever it is that one person says in a little village somewhere yeah. can now be amplified everywhere. And this means that it, the polarization isn't quite the same and does not operate in quite the same way. Correct. You wanted to make a difference in the world, you had to leave where you are perhaps or work directly where you are, but it's in the real world that those things happen. Yeah. Uh, today, how do we navigate You know where voices carry throughout the whole world and at the same time it's very difficult to be heard? But perhaps that's another episode. What happens laughter? As she writes this letter in October of 1863, that she and others are Adventists on the west coast of Africa, you quickly have to figure out, well, who's she talking about? And who's reading these letters? This is in, printed in the Review and Herald. So all of the Adventists of the era are getting the, the Review Seventh and Herald. Day Adventists. Seventh day Adventists yeah. of the era are getting so the James Review and Herald. Ellen White are reading, and now we have people and, in, in, in Africa. In fact, James and Ellen White are fascinated by her story, we learn later. All of the leadership of the new church in the new organization in Battle Creek, they're aware of this letter. They say a letter from Africa and they print her letter right mm. in there alongside the other letters. She writes multiple times that her story becomes quite well known because it's exotic. It's on the other side of the world as they saw. Right. But so, Bill, we've got a Seventh-day Adventist missionary in Africa in the 1860s. Yes. Not somebody sent by the Adventist no. church, but somebody who's calling themselves a Seventh-day Adventist and is a missionary. Yeah. Um, did it not occur to any church leader? You know, we've got, we know that every Adventist reads the review at that time. Um, they're all reading, you have committed Seventh-day Adventists on the coast of Africa. Does it not occur to anyone to say perhaps she can become our missionary and actually be a Seventh-day Adventist missionary in that other sense. Do we have any evidence about no that? No evidence that that came into anyone's mind. And in fact, she didn't ask for that sponsorship. Um, but it, it, it would, if we go back and unpack what was happening in that era in the church and in Battle Creek, they had not yet understood the, the notion that they owned a responsibility for the whole world. Yes. They were still believing that the world had come to the United States. If we evangelize the United States, we have in right. some sense touched and, the whole world. And we've touched on that in, a, in an earlier podcast. So and our listeners are hopefully familiar with that. Hannah is this exotic figure in a place they haven't even thought about sending anyone to. And so they read her letters and are curious. Um, and in the process, over several years, she writes, I believe it's three or four letters that are published in the review. There appear to have been others that didn't get published. Um, Ultimately, her own health, again, takes a downturn uh -huh. in 1865. One of the prominent converts she made, a gentleman by the name of Dickinson, working at the Episcopalian mission station with her. And this, she converts him to, converts him to, to Seventh-day Adventism. Seventh Adventism. He, she insists on keeping the Sabbath, and he insists on keeping the Sabbath as well at an Episcopal mission station. How did that go down? They fired him. <laughs> they kept her probably because it would have been more difficult to fire her, just going back to your issue about contentious personalities. But they told her, no more preaching of this stuff. They send him home, or he goes home to Australia. The first documented believer who identifies as a Seventh-day Adventist in Australia 
Haskell tracks his story some 30 years later, finds him, believe it or not, in the States and records pieces of all of this. Haskell is the one to whom we owe a lot of what we know collaterally about the impact of, Hel uh, of Hannah Moore's ministry. Made, she must have made a big impression on him that night. Well, and subsequently, he writes in a letter that she plants up to six congregations on the west coast of Africa. Six? That's his claim. Now, again, we don't have independent verification of that, and I don't know that he sought it. But nonetheless, she is known to have evangelized for Seventh-day Adventism on the west coast of Africa. She's moving about every six months from between mission stations. Right. Probably by now, because when they discover her Sabbath keeping and her commitment to Millerite Adventism, this is not congenial stuff. So right. after a few months, we think the Lord is calling you somewhere else, Sister right. Moore. And, so, is there a legacy? I mean, because I, I, I have read, researched, and written something about the early church, the early history of the church in West Africa, and there's no sense that when Adventist missionaries go back in the 1890s that there's any kind of movement because the people who asked them to come are very recent converts themselves from reading Adventist literature sent on ships in the 1890s. So is there a legacy? There doesn't appear to be a connector between whatever Hannah established and the first known converts in West Africa that are 30 to 40 35 years, years later. Yeah. Uh, and Haskell maintains that he met an individual in Indiana, ultimately, who was one of those people who had been part oh. of those faith communities Hannah founded. He, he has sort of a fragmentary collection of anecdotes about th her impact. He writes that he met such an individual, but we don't have, again, any sense that those communities survived to become uh, ongoing communities right. of Adventist faith. But nevertheless, uh, you know, this is an extraordinary achievement for one woman. Um, e even if even if the legacy doesn't survive, the com her commitment, and I mean, I think, you know, she's a contrarian perhaps, Sam, is what you were driving yeah. at, but she's also incredibly committed that here she is isolated and yet she is preaching what she understands to be the truth, even though it's not going to leave her in a, a good relationship with the people uh, who she's working for on different mission stations. And she's planting, she's not only converting others, she may be planting congregations. I mean, it's an extraordinary story, even if it's short-lived because she ends up going back to the States. I, you know, I think it's, it's worth paying tribute to the, 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 the dogmatic commitment of this one woman, having heard the truth, having studied it, she lives it out even in the most unpropitious of circumstances. When her health begins to fail, she starts trying to find a ship back. Remember, the Civil War is just ending. U.S. maritime industry is mostly commandeered for war purposes. It takes a year between when her request to get a ship home before she can travel home. And she arrives back in Boston in 1866 now in fragile health, uh, wanting to find the Haskells, wanting to join the people who brought her into this faith by their, his preaching, they're sending copies of the Review and Herald. Right. Her, her, she has put in what we would now call, on some level, three years of mission service as a self-identified Seventh-day Adventist, but not yet sent out by her church or commissioned in any formal sense. Right. Well, I think that's a good point to leave the story. Um, Bill, thank you so much for being with Sam and myself. Um, 
Thank you, listeners, for being with us on this episode of Mission 150 Podcast. Join us again next week when we will continue our conversation with Bill Knott and to find out why this extraordinary individual is one almost no Seventh-day Adventist has heard of. Thanks for being with us on the Mission 150 Podcast.